0: I'm Ryan Androsif. Welcome back to Let's Think Digital. After a hiatus for the past few months, we are back with season two of the podcast. I was really excited to launch this podcast back in February, and it's been so rewarding every time I've met somebody who's a listener. Your encouragement and your enthusiasm as our listener base continues to grow is really what keeps us going. So my sincere thanks to all of you who are listening in. Whether you are a first time listener or a returning regular, be sure to like and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and on our YouTube channel as it really helps to get the word out and make sure you get notified whenever we have a new episode drop. I had a great time putting together the first season. We had 10 episodes with a really interesting mix of experts diving into the major digital era trends that governments are trying to navigate. Things like artificial intelligence, digital literacy, innovation labs, accessibility and sustainability and the metaverse. We even capped it off with a special live episode with the Think Digital team, which was a ton of fun. So if you haven't listened to season one, I really encourage you to go back and watch and listen to some of our previous episodes, which I think sets the stage well for this upcoming season. But my mind goes back to where we started the podcast and our very first episode, appropriately titled, Dude, Where's My Digital Government? And as we start season two, this is a question that is still very much on my mind. As we talked about in that opening episode, there were a lot of lofty expectations in those early days of the internet back in the 1990s, and we haven't always met them. But even by the standards of today, as 2023 draws to a close, something feels amiss. Here in Canada, it feels like we're adrift when it comes to modernizing our government for the expectations and opportunities of today let alone thinking about where we need to be in the future. Sure, things are happening in scattered pockets, but we don't really seem to be getting anywhere in a hurry. It feels like we're stuck in the mud. As we suggest in the title for today's episode, I think a lot of people working in this space are coming to a growing realization that evolution isn't enough. I know that I am. If I can be perfectly honest, I spent a lot of time during my career inside government taking an evolutionary approach, including the approach to designing and launching the Canadian digital service. CDS was designed to be an evolutionary accelerator. It wasn't given new powers or authorities, but was instead designed to model how to approach digital service design and delivery in a different way, and partner with departments to guide them along on their digital journeys. All carrots, no sticks. Part of this was because of the very fractured and sometimes territorial nature of how the governance of all things digital is spread across both the federal government and with other levels of government here in Canada. It was unclear at the time that we could actually get new authorities for CDS and that attempting to might stop the initiative dead in its tracks before it even started. But part of this was also a conscious theory of change playing out, one that said that in a system as large and as complex as the federal government, the resistance to large-scale structural change might just be impossible to overcome in the short term. The thinking was that the system... Those who benefit from the status quo could simply wait out a new disruptive element. Eventually, the immune system of the big machine would kick back in, and you're back to square one. Thus, evolution in the face of this seems like a practical approach to get around this challenge. But the question is, is it enough? And this is not to say that no progress has been made in the last seven years, but when I look, Back on 2016, here in Canada, it felt like we had this unique moment in time when it comes to digital transformation and modernizing government for today's realities. We had lightning in a bottle for this brief period of time. And while we caught a piece of it, in retrospect, I think some of it slipped through our fingers. Now it feels like we are collectively holding our breath, waiting for that next moment to come. The good news is this, I think it may not be as far off as we think it is. More on that later at the end of the episode. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of participating in the latest edition of the Forward 50 conference here in Ottawa. Forward 50 is one of the largest gatherings in the world of digital government practitioners and innovators. A mix of public servants from here in Canada, those working in and around government in what I might call the GovTech industry, and leaders from around the world that come to share their perspective and experiences driving digital change in the public sector. This was the seventh year that Forward 50 has been held, and having participated in almost every single one of them, I can say that I always walk away from the event feeling energized and inspired by conversations both on and off the convention floor. This season, you're going to get a chance to see and hear some of those conversations. While we were there, Forward 50 set us up with a podcast recording booth to record some sit-down conversations with speakers and participants that we're going to be releasing in future episodes throughout this season of the podcast. We've got some really fascinating conversations with people like Jennifer Polka, Hillary Hartley, Aaron Snow, and other leaders in the digital transformation space. And this week... We're going to be sharing a conversation with my friend and former colleague, Sean Boots, about his Forward 50 talk that was titled Revolution, Not Evolution for Federal Public Service Delivery. His talk really tapped into this undercurrent of frustration that I spoke about. Talking to others at the conference, I know it struck a nerve for many. His was a call to action with 18 specific ideas for starting a revolution on how the federal government delivers services in the digital era, which he subsequently published as an open letter to the new Clerk of the Privy Council, who's the head of the public service and the top public servant in the government of Canada. I was really grateful that Sean was able to join us for an interview at Forward 50, and I'm very excited to introduce him as the first guest on Season 2 of Let's Think Digital. We talked about our work together in the early days of creating the Canadian Digital Service and where we've come to since then, his recent move from the federal government to now working for the Yukon government and what he has learned so far from that transition, and we discuss his call to action at Forward 50 and what he thinks it'll take to create a modern government up to the challenges of the digital era. Sean, welcome to Let's Think Digital. Thanks so much, Ryan. Great to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, we are here at Forward 50, live in Ottawa, a big digital tech conference. Very exciting. You were uh, one of the keynote speakers yesterday, and in a minute, I want to get into a little bit of what you talked about. You had what I kind of described as a very spicy and crunchy speech to, to other people. <laughs> Um, But I want to just, you know, talk a little bit about actually your career journey first. And and I have been honored to be part of that with you. In a big way. Yeah, I was, I mean, I was thinking back not too long ago, it was in 2016, you and I sat down for coffee in downtown Ottawa. I think we only knew each other over Twitter. I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was, you know, starting the process of trying to bring the Canadian digital service to life, even if we probably didn't have that name for it quite yet. And somehow managed to convince you to like join government and
1: be like employee number one for CDS. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think you sent me a Twitter message and, you know, Ryan, you're like, you know, let's grab a coffee. And Heather Martin, now wife, she was like, he's going to offer you a job. And I was like, I'm just going for coffee. This is like, you know, I have a job. And then long story short, you know, here we are. All these yeah. Later. I was doing a lot of headhunting in those days. I think a lot of my coffee meetings, I think, in that yeah, time period it turned yeah. into job offers it feels, eventually. It feels very full circle because I'm now staying at the Lord Elgin Hotel while I'm here for the conference. And it's like that Starbucks right there, that little sort of lounge on the side of it. That's that's where we first chatted. And yeah. it was just like a great go-to spot for coffees with cool <laughs> digital government folks. So for people who don't know Ottawa geography, the
0: Lord Elgin Hotel is like across the street from Treasury Board's offices where I was working at the time. And it became my little secret coffee place because there was a Starbucks there yep. and you could take the Starbucks and just hang out in the lobby by the fireplace That's at nice the Lord Elgin, which was yeah, nice. it's really good. Sadly, I discovered that Starbucks is closed. And so, no is,
1: yeah, so it is no longer an option. Oh my gosh, for, I yes. should have like turned 20 feet to the side <laughs> when I left this morning and I'm like, oh, no more Starbucks. Exactly. You so, you
0: know, you were at the Canadian Digital Service for, you know, essentially from the beginning until just very recently. Yeah. And, I, and I'll come back to talk about that. Yeah. But you've made a big change in life. So a couple of years ago, you know, for family reasons, you moved to Whitehorse.. Yep. and now for professional reasons, you've switched to working for the territorial government after yeah. many years with the feds. Yep. So I'm I'm curious your reflections. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the new role you're doing, but also I know it's early days. But yeah. but kind of initial impressions on the difference working for you know a relatively small
1: government, yep. working at a territorial level versus being in in a big federal bureaucracy. Yeah, for sure. So so yeah. So in August I wrapped up with the Canadian Digital Service. I think it was it was a couple months shy of what would have been seven years, which in hindsight it's a long time. And started work in a new role as the open government program manager for the government of the Yukon. And for me, it's really exciting because I've always been a huge like open data fan with different you know civic tech like side projects and sort of different data kind of things. And this is sort of like a one-person role inside of their bigger e-services team, uh, focused on open government programs and open data. And it's just like it's just like it feels so lovely to be working on a full-time job that's open data related. Yeah. But it's also really wild because sort of. You know, when I say bigger team, it's about eight people who also run the Yukon.ca government-wide website, who run different online services, really talented folks. And coming from a team, you know, CDS, I thought of as a small team in the federal government kind of context that has about had about 130 people when I left, yeah. which is just small by federal standards. And now switching from that to an eight-person team is like, oh, yes, we fit in like a room and another room and another little office. And it's, you know, that's the whole crew. Um, But the work that they're doing is really impressive. The amount of projects that they have in flight all at the same time really blew my mind when I first arrived. Um, And yeah, just like the sort of like the smaller jurisdiction, the different ways of working... You know, the relationships that they have with small IT companies that do a lot of the mm-hmm. sort of delivery and development work for them. It's really impressive to see. So
0: yeah, because you yeah. you made this comment in your in your keynote yesterday that yeah. there's kind of this like interesting ecosystem, yeah. you know, in the Yukon yeah. around like IT vendors, which actually oh, kinda totally. surprised me a little because because oh, yeah. on one hand, I would have probably maybe assumed that small jurisdictions become even that much more beholden. To you know, external big vendors. Yeah, but, but it seems like there has been an ecosystem that's popped up out there.
1: Yeah, and I'm—I mean, I'm still new, so I'm kind of still learning how that sort of grew. But there's a lot of really good, you know, small IT and web development shops in town. Not all of the vendors that we work with are based in Whitehorse. There's mm-hmm. some from across Canada. Um, but I think just because it's such a small jurisdiction, you can do work on smaller levels. Some of the procurement processes aren't as you know clunky and challenging mm-hmm. as the other government's procurement and RFP kind of processes. And so I think that opens the door to smaller companies who can kind of spend more time focusing on doing the work instead of focusing on... You know, having a whole team to get through the photo government's RFP process, right? Like that. So that is that is clearly translated into a lot of capacity that the team can bring in on short, and small projects. Hmm. Um, and yeah, as a longtime procurement cynic, yeah, it's been really eye opening to be like, oh, this is an IT procurement that went well. I don't think I've seen this before. This is a huge surprise. And so it's sort of had to, you know, that's that's challenged some of my own thinking on what is a good relationship between, you know, the public sector and the private sector work.
0: Yeah, like. it's interesting. Tech, I mean, in yeah, because for listeners of the podcast, you might remember in season one, We had Amanda Clark on the show to talk about the study that you and her had done together looking at procurement at the federal side and and some of the challenges around that. And so that's really interesting to hear that notion of kind of small scale, right? Yeah. Because I mean, I feel this, too, as you know, a small business, you know, you know, trying to kind of come into the big procurement machine. Sometimes you get kind of lumped in with those, you know, big, you know, 10,000 person companies who have, as you said, you know, whole Teens. floors whole oh, teams yeah. who are dedicated to filling out these RFP things exactly and I've been thinking a lot, too, about this notion of how do you make kind of modular contracting, totally. you know, that lets
1: smaller players and frankly can be a catalyst for small business in Canada. Yeah. And a lot of the research that Professor Clark and I did, you know, learning from other countries, like the work that Waldo Jake was and people did in the States, just like time and time again, it's the big projects that go way off rails yeah. and it's the small projects that are really tightly focused, you know, done in-house, done with vendors. Either way, those are the ones that actually work. Yeah. Well, and speaking of size, I also kind of wonder on the flip side like
0: with your team now at the Yukon government. Yeah. I mean, being an 8-person team, yeah. Like there might be some advantages to size scale, right? I mean, I think you're the one who introduced to me this
1: concept of the two pizza oh, meeting nice. rule. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Maybe talk about that and like, yeah, and, and how sure that applies. It's, from, it's you know, it's not mine. I'm sure it's from like some tech startup or maybe Amazon or who knows. But it's it's sort of this idea that you know, if you have a team working, usually it's sort of in the context of like a team working on a digital product. It's like if you can feed the whole team, you know, you're working late with two pizzas, it's a good size of a team because it's like maybe that's like six to eight people. Mm-hmm. Depends how big the pizza are. Depends um, how big the appetites are. Depends how hungry everyone is. Yeah, that's true. yeah, really hungry because we're working hard. Um, but as the team gets bigger than that, you then spend way more time kind of doing all the coordination of trying to keep everyone on the same page, yeah. sort of everyone kind of splinters off into different directions and it's hard to keep things focused. So for a product team, you know, if you can feed them with two pizzas. That's small enough that everyone kind of knows that everyone else is working on. Everyone feels comfortable asking questions from other people. And um, yeah, I hadn't really thought of the fact that the Yukon eServices team is a 2 pizza team, but it basically is. And I've really benefited from, you know, in these first few months there, just like being able to turn in my chair and be like, Jody, I don't understand why this works like it does. And just like, oh, this happened like eight months ago. So this is why we do it this way. Um, I, and that's I, really helpful context that you can't always get when you're
0: in a York position. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm expecting a photo from you on Mastodon in the near future of your team
1: with two pizzas. I think <laughs> I think not. I think that would be golden. They watched they watched it was really sweet of them. They watched my presentation yesterday morning, which I thought was at seven in the morning, but fortunately it was only at nine in the morning. Um, and they sent a photo from the boardroom where they all fit, um, watching it on the screen. So, so
0: great bridge to talk about your presentation yesterday. So, I I kind of describe your keynote as Sean Boots Unleashed. Uh, you know, you had, you had uh, you, I mean, still in your very, you know, humble Saskatchewan, you know, nice manner. For those who don't know, Sean and I both come from Saskatchewan originally, so we have that connection as well. Um, but, you know, I think your, your title of your presentation was revolution, not evolution. Um, be curious, you know, for folks who weren't here at forward 50 to give kind of the short precies
1: of, you know, what your, what your talk was about and kind of what your call to action was. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess the sort of the starting point, and I think in a sort of a community like this kind of goes without saying, it's like things aren't working super great we've had a lot of really notable IT failures we've had some like recent news around IT procurements that are a little bit sort of like things strange things are going on mm. uh, we've had a lot of really really huge government IT projects that even if they haven't failed yet I'm not super optimistic about what the future looks like just because they're so big. Yeah. And with all of that, you know, there's this gap between how it's really obvious that things should change, but our own kind of, in the federal government, you know, our internal processes and our sort of ways of working and our organizational culture and structures are all really, really sort of locked into the status quo, which is like, big projects, slow hiring times, not a lot of opportunity to do things differently, really outdated policies that Uh sort of lock in how people work. And, you know, it was sort of like a really gentle kind of call to arms. That's like, we have these clear problems out there. And there's sort of like a bigger framing that people are talking now about state capacity, which is like, you know, whether it's Canada, whether it's the US, whether it's other countries around the world there's clearly a need for public sector organizations and a need for them to be nimble and responsive and creative and fast-paced because the sort of social challenges, whether it's climate change, wildfires, infrastructure, housing affordability, like, those issues ramp up so quickly Mm -hmm. that if it takes the government another year and a half to be like, oh, we should actually think about this problem, like, you're too late and you'll lose, you know, social capital, you know, you'll lose people's trust in democratic institutions if the government And the public service can't keep up with what's going on it just gets faster and faster and so it's you know (laughs) the the the, the thread that i sort of tried to weave in the presentation which is maybe a little bit of a stretch is like public service capacity writ large you know is something that we're seeing as a challenge my own sort of like little microcosm of that is government technology work but that has a lot of downstream effects where you know, being able to organize data, being able to build good tech systems. That's also how you deliver services to the public. It's how you gather data to know what's going on. And those are things that we're really struggling with. And so, you know, the first half was like, here's the sort of premise. And the second half was like, since I have just left the federal government, My wife is calling this Sean's hot takes presentation, which is like, you know, here's some hot takes. But it was like, here's the things that I've seen over the last six or seven years yeah. that most of them are fairly small changes. Some of them are like slightly outlandish changes. But the the whole goal was to say, you know, we often get stuck in really small things. Uh-huh. Like We're gonna spend three years thinking about changing two sentences in this policy and it's like, that is small potatoes. Look at the world. It's time for some big potatoes. And like, you know, look at ways that we can change things in really dramatic ways to better be ready to solve problems.
0: Well, and I thought that was one of the things that was great about the presentation was you had some very tangible actions that you kind of threw out there for the world to look at to respond to, including I saw you publish as well an open letter to the the relatively new clerk of the Privy Council with some recommendations in there. I, I know there's a lot. We don't have to go through them all, but I'm curious if you want to maybe just give a sampling of you know some of maybe the small changes and maybe yeah. some of the like outlandish ones as you put it that you might kind of throw on the table.
1: Yeah, totally. Well, it's it's hard now to sort of remember what's you know what's big and what's small, but I think the like the gist of it is there's there's things that we can do to better empower people. Mm-hmm. Some of those are things like having individual contributor positions that are not managers all the way up to the sort of very top of whether it's the like IT classification or the ESA classification or whatever yep. it is. Just you have really talented people that if they want to keep on moving their career are kind of forced into management roles when they'd actually be doing better just, you know, cranking out awesome code on their keyboards or, like, writing really great ideas down. And our HR structures don't allow that. So that's, that's sort of one bucket. Um, and, and just on this one, just before before we yeah. move on,
0: like, you know, you and I have lived this both being in the public service totally. and trying to navigate it. Yeah. Like, what, like, what frustrates me, frankly, yeah. is because, like, I was there and you were there mm-hmm. seven years ago when there was actually the refresh happening to the IT classification yeah. system. And for those who are in the federal government, you'll kind of know the CS formally, now it's IT classification, goes up to IT5, yeah. which are actually designed in many ways. I mean, we actually pushed to make sure that that could be an individual contributor yeah. who's being paid a kind of an EX2EX you know, equivalent. Yeah. But I think the reality is, like, even though in theory it's allowed… Yeah.
1: In practice, most HR teams won't let you do it. And there are there are specific structures that uh, TBS's office of the chief human resources officer or crow publishes that basically say if you're an IT five, you must be a manager managing other people. And teams have worked around that in weird ways, like. Yeah here's our IT5 position, here's some pretend IT4 positions that will report to them so that we can get this through the HR approval process, yeah. which is, you know, if it works, great, but it's sort of an indication that the systems that we have aren't working to hire people to be able to actually just do their craft, you know, and, at and the top y- of their game.
0: Yeah, and even at that same time, there was a whole debate going on around people wanted to re- uh, re- or add in a mandatory education requirement yeah. for the IT stream, yeah. like formal education, you have to have a bachelor's degree. Yeah. And you might remember this, there was a whole bunch of discussion and myself and others kind of push back pretty hard totally. to say like you know in this world oh, yeah. a lot of people have non-traditional education paths or totally. self-taught. Yep. I remember being at a meeting and I think my line was essentially like if we have a policy for HR yep. that says that we couldn't hire Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. to come in and be a developer,
1: I think we've got oh, a fundamental yeah. issue there. Totally. And like Shopify here in Ottawa, they've got programs that if you're a really talented high schooler who's yep. into coding, like they'll put you through an education path and they'll like they'll hire you without a degree, like no problem. And so really great people get snapped up by other, you know, the tech industry or other other groups that don't have the hiring limitations. Yeah. And so as the tech industry has moved to be way more permissive of who they bring in because they just really need talented people, the government seems to have taken this trend of becoming more restrictive right at the worst possible time. Right. Okay. So talent recruitment talent recruitment. Big yep. thing. Yep. Some other ones? Uh, another one was basically just like as a general principle, putting digital practitioners at the very top of organizations. And this is basically like you've got really talented digital leaders in the federal government, you know, at every level, but they're always reporting through, you know, from them to like the DG, to the ADM, to the DM. And the jurisdictions that have done the very best job in Canada, in my opinion, at digital government are people, you know, Governments that have hired really talented people like Hillary Hartley in Ontario and brought her in as a deputy minister, where it's like she doesn't have to convince two or three layers of, you know. 20 plus year long public service leaders Uh to change things and do things differently. She was just given the mandate to be like, you're Hillary Hartley, you know your stuff, rock and roll. And I'm sure there's, you know, I'm sure she had a lot of challenges, you know, to work through with like helping bring along traditional organizations that she works with. So it's probably not just like walking the park by any stretch, but you can hit the ground running in a way when you don't have to spend a lot of time convincing your senior management to convince their senior management colleagues. And you can just say like, you know, if you're hiring people at that level, they're way better positioned to make broader change in the government. Right. So Natasha Clark in Nova Scotia, same thing, like Deputy Minister, doing awesome work. Yeah. Just like a little bit more like runway to run with stuff.
0: Yeah, and and I might even kind of add, like, you know, so elevating those digital leaders, but then also for kind of what I might call, like, traditional leadership roles. Oh, yeah. Having digital competencies
1: as part of that selection and hiring process. Yeah, and I think that's, like, a really important part of the work that you do is that I think there's always been this sort of impression, you know, across government that it's like, oh, yeah, if you're, like, a senior public service leader, you know, you need to know, like a solid grounding of like accounting mm-hmm. and like of like government HR and of like policy and legislative sort of processes and it's like you can't become a DM and know nothing about HR like that just won't happen yeah but you know you can become a deputy minister or an ADM with very little tech savvy and kind of like a lot of the presenters that hit on stage here at 450 50 it's like you don't need to be like I did a coding boot camp like I know mm-hmm. Python it's like that's not required but you need to understand like how to learn from your users you need to know that like design research is important mm-hmm. you need to learn that like you know this kind of tech thing is likely to be simple and easy. This kind of tech thing is likely to be really complicated. Yep. And Jen Polka in her book has really good examples. I think it's like a, a quote from Dave Guarino, who's like an awesome tech just like legend in the in the U.S. civic tech community. And it's like you know someone is like, hey, I want an app that tells me you know from my GPS location if I'm in a national park or not. And it's like no problem. Like we'll just you know do a GPS lookup and like mm-hmm. trade that against a map and like like an afternoon. Great. And they're like, oh, and if I take a photo, I want it to tell me if there's a bird in the photo. And of course, this is like five, six years ago. And he was like, oh, yeah, they'll take a team of like 20 researchers, five years. And so it's like, am I in a park or not? Super easy. Is this a bird? Super challenging. Yeah. And like the tech implementation of those things might sound kind of similar. Yeah. But people who have enough of a tech grounding to say, oh, yeah, that is a simple and easy problem. Yes. That is a dramatically complicated problem, that's really useful because I think often in, you know, planning giant IT projects or even small IT projects, people who are often making decisions about how a project should work or what the priorities should be, if they can't tell the difference between, you know, this list of features, this feature is super easy and also really important to users and this feature is super hard, and, you know, may make a big difference or may make a small difference yep. to users. Doing that kind of like triaging, you know, yep. if you've got zero background in tech, but you're the decision maker, that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, yeah it's
0: a great point. Um, so I think that was a, that's, you know, an interesting kind of thread on this. You mentioned in that design u- research and user centricity, one of the recommendations you had is one that was near and dear to my heart, this notion of getting senior leaders
1: to actually participate yeah. in user research. Can you talk about that a totally. little bit? Totally, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, easy to say it as sort of like a trite suggestion, but the idea is, if you're an ADM or a deputy minister that has a service delivery department, you should spend an hour a month answering tech support phone calls, or like, you know, the client support line. Tech support is maybe not the right word for this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, companies like Shopify, like Toby Ludka, who's the CEO, he does shift, apparently, you know, he's talked about it publicly, like, yep. every, you know, every month, you know, listening to people calling in and saying, like, I'm trying to log into Shopify and it's not working. And that's really good feedback for him as the most senior decision maker in the company to say, maybe we can improve that process. Here's where people are getting stuck, because it's, it's one thing for your teams to say, this is an issue, but, you know, if you're in a decision making kind of role... Everything's always on fire. There's yep. a million priorities, you know, it's it's hard to sort of yep. make sense of what's really important. But if you're on the phone and someone is like, I tried to apply for a my Service Canada account, I got stuck five minutes in, can you help me? It's like, if it's the deputy minister who's on the phone trying to solve for that, yep. that is a totally different dynamic. And, you know, from, you know, stories that people have posted on Reddit, like doing that work you know, as a frontline call center, center for Service Canada, for mm-hmm. like the I pro- EI program or whatever it is, you know, there's a massive level of complexity there. There's hundreds of pages of regulations, yep. like the training process is really important and like really time consuming and I think that would make it easy to dismiss this idea of having senior leaders do, you know, like call center mm-hmm. or like frontline client support, and people would just say the rules are too complicated. You know, our senior management doesn't have time to learn how to do this, and it's like that in itself is it's, really it's a good lesson it's like, learned, Yeah, if your system is so complicated that the senior decision makers that are deciding how the program works, you know, can't learn how the program works because it's too complicated. Like, there's your problem to solve. Like, yeah. get right on that. It was, you know, I, I reflect on the
0: fact that the U.K. government, when they had their very first digital service standards yeah. back in 2011, they had 18 points, and point 18 was any new digital service, the minister had to actually test it out. Yeah, totally. You know, before, yeah. before it went live, and I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. Um, you no, know, and I love that suggestion for you, because it's like, for me, it's the top of my list, right, of totally. kind of like, you know, small changes we could make. And whether it's once a month, even though I would take once every six months. Oh, totally. Yeah, you know, to yeah. get a deputy Start minister somewhere. to get a deputy minister and like ADMs to be on the front lines. Yeah. Seeing real people interacting with their department in some way, Probably,
1: yeah. I think the impact that would have on people's yeah. kind of internal incentive structures yeah. would be huge. Yeah, and you could do it. You could do it different ways. Like you could have them like shadow a frontline support person at a Service Canada office. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of ways, even or like you know RCC office, whatever it is, doesn't have to be Service yep. Canada. There's there's different ways that you could do it that don't require them to sort of spend months training first. But like the goal mm-hmm. is, you want them to see the frontline interaction yep. in a non staged environment. You don't want them just to like, we're going to do a walkthrough at the regional office yep. and everyone shakes their hand and then they leave. It's like, yep. no, no, you want them to see what it's like for people to interact with the services yep. that they're ultimately responsible for.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was involved in a, in a project years ago with IRCC um, that actually kind of got publicly shared um, quite a bit and actually had a lot of buzz around it. Uh, there's a Toronto Star article about it, which we can put a link to in the notes. And one of the things that was part of that, which was really fascinating, was the fact that, you know, we had people who had been in the department for decades, but had never actually experienced like frontline service delivery, watching, you know, potential new Canadians yeah, yeah. trying to navigate the systems. Yeah. And the number of just like light bulb moments oh, that yeah. I think go off for people when they get yeah. to
1: experience that totally. is incredible. Yeah. And I remember one of the one of the like lifelong highlights for me at CDS was when we were doing research with the Veterans Affairs Department. Mm-hmm. And to be able to come along as a note taker right. for design research with veterans yep. at one of the regional offices in Gatno. And it was just like, to this day, just like, you know, you learn so much from hearing firsthand from people, how they're interacting with cloud yep. services, you know, really challenging life positions. And... You know, that is something that if you read it like in a giant Word document, it's not the same as if you yeah. experience it firsthand. Or even, you know, if you look at statistics or so you're
0: looking at call totally. center data, like I think we get very in government, people are drawn towards like quantitative data. Yeah.
1: Is the number going up? Is the yeah. number going down? And it's like those numbers are people. They are. With lives that are yeah. complex and that really depend on government services. And if we're not doing a good job of delivering that, like yeah. that changes their lives in big ways. Absolutely. Okay, so we've talked about a few of
0: your recommendations. I want you to tell me what you think is your most outlandish. You said you had a couple of, like, you know out there ideas oh, which, yeah. which which one is the top of your like you know
1: more aspirational ones that you, yeah, that you put I forward mean, I mean like part of this is sort of you know the negotiation strategy of like if I put out some crazy <laughs> ideas then the other ones will so hopefully see more because yep. they should be achievable yep. um, probably the wildest one is just suggesting to remove a layer of public service executive management hierarchy um, you well know, that one got a round of applause yesterday which was surprising maybe that also says you know maybe we need more executives in the room here at 420 who would be like, hey, my role is important, which it is. Um, but, you know, working in a jurisdiction that just has one less layer of hierarchy, it's it's clear that that speeds things up. Yeah. And you see, I forget who it was from, it was probably a comment on Reddit somewhere, that their sort of diagnosis of one of the challenges structurally with public service is that the same conversations happen twice, once at the sort of working level of, you know, okay. non-executive public servants who have conversations, talk about sort of trade-offs, you know, land on some recommendations. And then the exact same conversation happens over again at the executive layer because there's three or four layers of it that can sustain an independent conversation yeah. with much less frontline knowledge that either delays the first conversation yeah. from being able to have an impact or just sort of overwrites it completely. And so yeah. we have enough layers that for executives in government, you know, it's easy to get kind of caught in this circle of conversations that ideally you just say, my team has thought about this and I trust them. Rock and roll, like we don't need to re- yeah. re-litigate this over and over again.
0: I've, like, I've often thought, and from my lived experience going through the public service and living there, like in the federal public service, for people who are in the feds and will know kind of the classification structure, yeah. that space between what they call an EX minus one, so it might mm-hmm. be like a senior advisor or a manager on a team, to like the EX two la- layer. So you have like mm-hmm. often you'll have a manager or a senior advisor, yeah. you know, who kind of plays a team lead role. Yeah. You've got a director, and then you get a senior director clearly in that in those 3 you could collapse at least one layer. Oh,
1: totally. And, yeah, yeah,
0: and yeah. arguably, you could maybe collapse maybe two. Maybe two. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, Like, yeah, like yeah. I think there's actually an argument. I remember years ago having sketched this out to actually say on like like you should have like kind of team leads who are subject matter experts that effectively should just report to the DG on most things because totally. yeah. the director general level in my experience is really the kind of the folks in the middle of the executive hierarchy who have signing authority and kind of really yeah. get
1: things done. They can make decisions. Right? They can spend money. Yeah. They're still slightly attached to like specific problem areas. Yeah. yeah. And maybe there's a case to say they need, like, a 2IC a director
0: level because yeah. there's not you know, they have a big enough team, they don't have enough space to kind of do it all themselves. Totally. Yeah, yeah. But I think
1: that, like, I think clearly in
0: there, there's some room yeah. to collapse at least a layer.
1: Yeah, and I have, you know, speaking as someone who has friends that are in those positions, it's often really thankless work where you're sort of yeah. stuck acting as kind of like a little bit of like a postal service person carrying sort of information from a layer down to a layer up without yeah. much influence to change things. Yeah. And that's just... And yeah, and you're just like in meetings all day without much sort of much autonomy. That yep. you know, you want to be able to make a difference, but you're stuck just sort of yep. like too squished between other layers. I love it. I mean, so I'd recommend people. We'll put the link
0: in the chat in, or in the in the notes of the episode for your letter to the clerk and, nice. and the link to your presentation. I think some great food for thought in there. Awesome. Uh, really enjoyed it. I wanted to ask you about one last thing, um, yeah. which, you know, you and I were there at the beginning of the Canadian Digital Service. You know, we both helped to birth it yeah. uh, along with some of our other colleagues. And you were there. You know, I left shortly afterwards, but you've stayed on for, as you said, almost seven years. Yeah. Um I'm curious a little bit of your reflections of, like, the arc of the Canadian digital service. Like, in particular, and, and as some people may be aware but may not be, yeah. some dramatic changes in recent years, yeah. you know, where yeah. we kind of created at Treasury Board Secretariat to play kind of a whole government role. Yeah. It has now been kind of rolled into ESDC as part of the Service Canada portfolio, yeah. reporting to the new Minister of Citizen Services. So, yeah. big change structurally. Yeah. But I'm just – I'm curious your sense of kind of the arc of it and maybe more broadly. Like, I think globally – from like 2010 to 2020 yep. there was this like proliferation of these government digital teams you know Damn. started in the UK but around the world you know like there's dozens and dozens of them yep. and i think there was a lot of excitement about this model yep. I would argue that in 2023, we're in a little bit of a lull. There is a feeling certainly here in Canada that we're a little stuck in the mud and that these teams can play a useful role, but they're certainly not enough in and of themselves. But I'm curious your take on this and like your sense of the arc of this
1: kind of digital government movement we've been through in the last 15 years. For sure. Yeah. I mean, like, I I feel very lucky having had the chance to be part of it, um, sort of especially at the stage where I was sort of moving from working as a software developer back into a government world, which I was really excited to uh-huh. do back in 2016. And I had, I had written, you know, one of my sort of last grad school papers a few years before that sort of on like the early years of GDS as it was really taking flight and it was just like, how how lucky am I, like how inspiring just to be able to work on a thing that's just like, you know, this is my grad school research and now we're starting a Canadian version. Like, could not believe that this is what was happening and yeah I think I mean for both of us and for the team like a lot of high hopes a lot of sort of like aspirations of becoming sort of like the change the change makers that we saw and that we look up to and, and looked up to since like since the start in the UK and in the states with US digital service and with 18f the idea that you know could we make the same change happen in Canada and looking back I mean I think it's safe to say especially sort of like you said read a bit of a lull where it's like did we have the impact that we hoped for no did we have the level of impact that the UK GDS had? <laughs> nope. Like, we really we really wanted to. Um, and maybe it sounds too fatalist to be like, we tried because, like, there's awesome people at CDS. They're doing amazing stuff. Yep. They're, like, crushing it yep. in challenging circumstances as they're, like, moving between departments. And they're like, our Privacy Act authorities are changing. Our legal authorities are changing. Procurement, it's changing. And, you know, just, like, the fact that they're running with that is super impressive. I think there's a few... There's a few sort of points in time where, you know, for me as someone who has, you know, joined the team really early on and sort of watched it grow from like five people uh-huh. at the start when I joined to like 130 people, you know, you have these moments of realization that are sort of like, if we had known this at the start, maybe we would have done some things differently. Uh-huh. And one of the big ones for me, and I think it was Stéphane Boisvert who pointed this out to me once. Coming from a tech startup and joining, you know, rejoining really the public service, I think I definitely had this sort of assumption in my head that it was like, we're going to build great stuff. We're going to make awesome products that are really like well designed, that are just like super nice to use. And I had this assumption that that was like that will be enough to make the case for our work. And you know, if we build this amazing thing, show it to some deputy ministers, they're going to be wowed, and they're going to be like, let's you know, let's bring CDS in, let's partner with them on some giant project, let's yeah. like let's change everything. Obviously, that did not happen. And I think it was like that assumption rests on already having senior public service leadership that can tell the difference, kind of like we talked about a moment ago, like between good and bad software, between well-designed online services and poorly designed ones, between things that are simple and things that are complicated. And if we brought an amazing product that the team poured their heart and soul into you and the the decision makers like, you know, I can't tell the difference between this and, you know, PeopleSoft, which is like the product that Phoenix is built with. And you're just like, if if the people making decisions about, you know, how to approach IT projects, whether to partner with CDS, can't tell the difference between good and bad software, it's like, then we need something more to make the case for our work. Right. And I think it's taken the team a while to kind of figure out how do you find partners, how do you like stick with them through like leadership changes on the partner side, you know, yep. changes in priority at either like senior public service levels or political levels. And we never really figured that figured that out. And I always think back, I think this was a few months before we joined, um, we had a call with David Eves, who for those who we know is a legend in the open data and government technology world. Mm-hmm. And this is maybe like a few months before CDS launched and David Eves on a Zoom call was like, I don't think it's gonna work. And all of us were like, oh, we're so <laughs> excited. I can't believe you said that. Um, and his his argument was that basically CDS as designed was all carrots and no sticks. It was like, yep. we're here as like friendly, free help for other government departments. Call us if you need us, we're here to help. We didn't want to be a stick on purpose because at the time that we launched CDS, everyone was still pretty bitter about the launch of Shared Services Canada, that made a lot of really sort of like it was a very top-down decision oh, when yeah. SSC came in, and yeah. I think everyone, you know, everyone was worried that you know was CDS <sighs> going to be like the shared services but for frontline service delivery, which yep. we didn't want to be. And so we were like, no, no, we don't want sticks. We just want to be the friendly, the friendly folks to call if you need help. And yep. of course, then if people didn't call us which often is what happened then that really limited the impact that we could have yep. and david he's called that 3 months before we launched you know what
0: i it's i'm reminded of of that that conversation and you're 100% right and and it's worth i mean for context saying it's not that we kind of said we you know we would have taken a stick if we could oh, get yeah. it yeah I think when we were putting CDS together, it was kind of this math of figuring out, like, what is what is the optimal path for us to take to actually get it launched? Totally. Because we know that if you're trying to, like, change the bigger governance arrangements to get authorities, I mean, my worry at the time was we had that window of opportunity, yep. and the push to do that yep. would have taken
1: so much effort to get over the hill, it just would have never happened. Yeah, exactly, for sure. And and I think one of the realities, both when we launched and still today, is that the, the ecosystem of, IT-related and digital service-related organizations in the federal government is still a really complicated sort of solar system of all these different players with all these slightly related or slightly overlapping responsibilities. That was actually, that was another one of my provocative suggestions was move shared services under the GCCIO because right now you've got all these sort of weird parallel structures and OCIO will tell SC to do things by updating a published standard on enterprise systems. And it's just like if you just reported in a more harmonized way. You just make decisions faster. And, and and only is there that disconnect. I mean, Service
0: Canada, people I may not know are the ones who actually run the Government of Canada website exactly. domain. Yeah. You know, you've got the new Minister of Citizen Services over there. You've got Treasury Board plays a role. Public Services and Procurement plays a role on the totally. procurement side of it. Oh, yeah. I said plays a role when it comes to kind of digital policy as is Canadian heritage. Yeah. Like, it's, I think we've got a very fractured governance landscape in World Canada World. Yeah. compared to a lot of other comparable oh, yeah. countries, yeah. which tend to
1: have, as you said, Yeah, a bit more sticks and a bit more of a streamlined governance process. We have a fractured structure and we have a public service culture that says, don't rock the boat. Consensus is really important. Yeah. Don't disagree with other senior leaders. And so no one is equipped to say, hey, this fragmentation, are we sure this is a good idea? and kind of like I talked about in my talk yesterday it's like the status quo just sticks around yeah. there's no no single person in those ecosystems is equipped to say yeah let's do this differently
0: yeah i think it's a really important call to action on that and and i'm i'm glad that you kind of brought all that forward i think the closing question i want to ask you on this is i mean you're you're a very optimistic person by nature i think and you know and i think just even having discussions here at the conference this week and i would just say re- in recent years This notion that people are feeling a little bit stuck, it can be a very tough journey. I mean, I live this too, where you kind of feel like you're pushing the boulder up the hill constantly, sometimes by yourself. How do you stay optimistic, and what advice would you have for public servants? who are feeling demotivated, feeling like we're not going to get there, what advice would you give to them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's true. Like, It feels like a low point. It feels like morale is, a, is often a challenge lately. I think for me, it's just the fact that there are so many really amazing people, which is maybe a sort of like a, a stereotypical answer, but just like all the public servants that I run into, all the public servants that I work with, you know, both when I was at CDS and with the Yukon government, brilliant, inspiring, super thoughtful, super caring people. And I think for me that's what really keeps me motivated. It's just like we're all fighting these wild fights. There's always lots of challenges and barriers. But the people that you have like on your side are mm-hmm. really awesome. And I mean Ford Fifty here is just like <laughs> such a lovely example of that we're just like catching up with old friends, you know, public servants from around the world that are heroes of mine. Um, they're great people that are trying to change public services for the better. And, you know, when things are low, you just got to find your friends and find your allies and say, like, we're all in this together. And, yeah, Marina Nitza, who wrote a book, Hacking Your Bureaucracy, she was read 450 last year. She talks about that, basically, like, find your find your squad, yeah. find your people, and, um, yeah, and, like, stay connected to, to everyone when when things are great and when things are tough. Yeah. Thanks
0: Sean for 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 this and for spending some time with us and thank you for being an ally for so many people on this. I know, you know, you are a very community-minded uh person. I think you've done a lot to help inspire fellow public servants. So thank you for everything that you've oh, done as I'm well. Trying. Likewise, I got you.
1: Really appreciate it. Thanks
0: Thanks again so much to Sean for the interview. A really fascinating conversation. And also thanks to the Forward 50 organizers for letting us record and have some really important interviews and discussions at the sidelines of this year's conference. It was particularly appropriate to be at Forward 50 this year recording for the podcast because at last year's edition in 2022, My podcast producer, Wayne Chu, and I actually had our first discussions and officially decided to launch the podcast. So it felt full circle for us to be back on site this year and and continue some of these really important conversations that we try to drive forward on this podcast. At the beginning of this episode, I said that the conditions for change may be coming. and may be coming sooner than we think. I think we need political momentum if we're going to get beyond evolutionary approaches. We need a political revolution on what good looks like in terms of government in the 21st century and how to make that happen. And it has to be a political revolution that goes beyond party lines. We need to build a consensus around the idea that government must change in the digital era if it's to meet the expectations of its citizens. Somebody recently mentioned to me that in some ways, Canada feels like it's at a point where the United Kingdom was back in 2010, a time of political and economic upheaval. And these are always times that are full of great peril, but also great opportunity. If we can leverage it correctly, this can be an accelerator for moving government forward faster than we might have thought possible otherwise. So what do you think? Do you agree that we're stuck in the mud in Canada when it comes to digital? How do you think we can get ourselves moving again? Let us know. Email us at podcast at thinkdigital.ca. Or use the hashtag Let's Think Digital on social media. Our next episode of Let's Think Digital is going to be diving into a conversation we had at Forward 50 with Jennifer Polka, the author of the recently released book, Recoding America, and a really interesting conversation around building state capacity. You won't want to miss it. If you're watching this on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast app, be sure to give us a five-star review afterwards. Also, make sure to sign up for our email list at letsthinkdigital.ca so you can get notified in your inbox when our latest episode comes out. And no matter where you're listening, make sure you tell others about the podcast. It's so important for us for that word of mouth to help grow our audience and get these important conversations happening across the digital government community. Today's episode of Let's Think Digital was produced by myself, Wayne Chu, and Aislinn Bournet. Thanks so much for listening, and let's keep thinking digitally.